The words of that song we all sung, the last phrase, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, what is it, my all. And that's the way it is for me. And that's the way it has been for me since I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ when I was a little boy of nine years old up in Maine, a long ways away from here. But my parents were godly parents, and they taught me to read the Bible. My mother read the Bible to us children. We were encouraged to read it through from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, including Numbers and Chronicles and Leviticus and lots of other things that I don't think I understood very much. But I'm so thankful for the heritage that I had of a godly home. I have three thoughts that I'd like to leave with you today, perhaps three vignettes. Obviously, I can't give you the history of my life, and you wouldn't care about that anyway. But perhaps as you consider your role as young people about to step out into life to let your light shine, you can benefit from some of the ways that the Lord has helped me during some very interesting, sometimes difficult, sometimes challenging experiences in my 55 years that I never thought I'd have. The first is, I just want to tell you a little bit about who I am, where I came from. The next is the journey between the time I graduated from college and the time I ended up in Washington, D.C., and then 12 years of serving in some of the positions of leadership in this nation, working in the White House for five years, as a matter of fact. Now, I want to tell you that there was another song, a phrase that we sang about pride, getting rid of pride. Well, I want to tell you a real story, and it's funny now, but it wasn't when it happened. When I was working at the White House, I had an opportunity to go to the Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C. during the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And they had a long, long uh, stage with a dais of people that was probably 25 people in the front row, and then they had tears behind that. And they had all of the preachers and the radio personalities and the congressmen and the senators and ambassadors. They were just all arrayed. As you sat in the audience, 3,000 people out there looking at this array of leaders. And at the time, I came in a little late. Now, I've learned, as I've thought about this uh, since, I think, well, maybe one of my problems is tardiness. I don't know. I, I'm working on that. But I came in a little late to this convention. In fact, it was in honor of the state of Israel. And I came and got up on the edge of the stage over here and sat at my place in the very end of the table. And next to me was a congressman and Mr. Jack Kemp, then a congressman, was speaking. And they had just finished breakfast. Well, I finished my coffee and whatever. And I thought, well, I can't see very well down at the end of that where that uh, Jack Kemp was speaking. So I'll shift my chair just a bit so that I can see better. Yes. The right rear leg of my chair, when I shifted it, was out over space because I was like three and a half feet up above the floor. And so as I leaned to see Jack, I started to go like this, and my chair started to go, and so I grabbed the tablecloth. Well, my friend, the congressman, was right on the job, and he grabbed the other side. But I won, and I went right over backwards. Coffee cups, plates, 
you name it, tremendous clatter. You know, and I fell, <clears throat> fortunately only hurting my pride, nothing else, but my everything really went right down on the floor and I picked myself up off the floor while everybody's eyes were focused on me and who should I see but Ben Elliott, who was the speechwriter for President Reagan, working at the White He said, you know, are you okay? And I said, no, I am not okay. See you later. And I went out the side door. Well, I, he said, you know, do you want to come back in? I said, no, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll see you later. Well, I think I perhaps did come in, but uh, that, that certainly uh, humbled me, if you might. You know, here I am. I'm from the White House, you know. You could be a janitor from the White House, and they think you're, you, you know something. But, well, anyway... Just one of the places where the Lord knows how to just kind of keep you humble. I won't tell you the other story. You'll think I'm really a nut. Uh, not, almost knocked a grandfather clock over in the Roosevelt room right across from the Oval Office when I came in and sat down in a chair. And Pat Buchanan was sitting at the table and his eyes got big. I didn't know who he was looking at. And all of a sudden it was me. And I looked and my chair had sunk into the rug enough so it was hitting the grandfather clock because I wanted to be real quiet. You know, and the clock was going back and forth like this. So I was late again. See, that's why I began to learn. Maybe that was... Uh, not the thing to do. The story I want to tell you is the story of an average man. I got C's in school. I had the teacher put on my report card, lack of mastery of fundamentals. I had baseball, uh, sandlot baseball down. I could hit home runs. I knew where the swimming hole was. We lived up in Maine in the country. We were, I guess by today's standards, poor. But we didn't know it. And I never had any idea that I'd be here, for sure, talking to you, nor did I have any idea that I would be in Washington, D.C. But because of the training that my parents gave me, for which I am so grateful, they led me to the Lord and to take care to order my steps according to His will. And that I have done throughout my lifetime. I was a rebellious young fellow. I didn't get into a lot of the trouble that people have these days because of the pressures of drugs and all that goes on with that. But in my heart, I was rebellious. I was rebellious against God. I was rebellious against, um, in some ways, my parents, although I, didn't, I never left home or whatever. But during my years, my teenage years, I had the seeds of rebellion inside. Oh, you would look at me and you would say, well, he was probably a pretty good kid. But inside, I had that thing that still was going to direct my own path, make my own decisions. I graduated from college in 1960, and I had taken the test to become a pilot. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a jet pilot. I wanted to go uh, flying off into the wild blue yonder. And so I took the test for aviation candidate school and passed them. They flew me down in a jet to Weymouth, Massachusetts, and I was headed for Pensacola, Florida to become an officer. So I joined up in the Navy Reserve when I was 18 years old. I'd had like seven years in the reserves, and man, I wanted to be a pilot. My parents said, you ought to be a teacher. I said, forget it. I have been through school long enough. I don't want to see another school. I want to go down and I want to fly airplanes. I was in my college dormitory in the summer of 1960, finishing up my few courses for my degree. And in the quiet time in my room with nobody around, I knew inside that God had something in mind for me, but I wasn't sure what. And I really wanted to be a pilot, but somehow something told me there's something else. So I was on my knees in prayer. And I had my papers ready and I was shipping out within the next 
month, actually. But I was on my knees, all alone in my room, asking God that to change my heart if it needed to be changed. I wanted to do His will all the time in the back of my mind, saying, I already know what I'm going to do anyway, but, you know, Lord, anything else you have in mind? Why, whisper quietly, but not too loud. And there was a rap on the door. And who should it be but the principal of a little school in Maine? And he was there because one of my friends down the hall had said, you know, Sweet would make a good teacher. He'd be a good teacher. Uh, maybe he's had chemistry and physics courses. You need a, uh, a science teacher. You ought to talk with him. So oh, I thought, oh, man, now, now what am I going to do? You know, that's kind of an interesting message. While I'm on my knees praying and I have somebody come to my door and say, would you like to be a teacher? So I said, well, okay. He said, the superintendent's down here and he'd like to talk to you and see if we can recruit you. So I thought to myself, well, I knew what the salary scales were. I'll ask more money than he can possibly pay me. Um, we'll just see how it goes. So I went down and talked to this old superintendent in Maine, wise old man, been around a long time. So he talked to me and then he said, uh, well, I think I'd like to have you. I said, well, okay. Uh, well, I'm afraid I couldn't do it. I'm sure it'd be, you have to pay me more money than, I can afford, than you can afford to. And uh, he said, well, what's that? I said, well, you'd have to probably pay me $4,000 a year Big salary, right? Four thousand bucks a year. And he said, uh, "Well, you're kind of a Yankee trader. I guess we'll do it." So I became a teacher. That was thirty-one years ago, something like that. Well, fortunately, instead of flying off to Pensacola and probably being killed in Vietnam or whatever, I became a teacher. And I married the girl of my dreams, who was very glad I didn't fly off to uh, uh, wherever. We've been married for 32 years. We have five children, as he said, five grandchildren. And she has been my prayer partner, my wife Joy, my spiritual supporter, my friend. And together, we have journeyed through these years. So if there's one point I would suggest to you is, find the girl the Lord wants for you. Gentlemen, young ladies, find the young man that the Lord has for you. And together seek to do his work in the marketplace or wherever the Lord calls you. Well, here come the children. We're married. 1970, 71, five children. All of a sudden, public school. Well, during the 60s and 70s, many of you know... No, you don't. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> what can I say? terrible it just seems like a few days ago but there was a lot of upheaval in public education during that period of time and I became involved with school committee ran for the school board and then during the end of the 70s I felt I worked for a publishing company I made a living I provided for my family the Lord was very good to us and we we never got rich but we had enough to provide for our needs well then it was decision time again because I felt the nudge or the the feeling that something else was in the, in the offing for me, something else on the horizon. So in 1978, I left a secure position and took a job talking to industry, to chief executive officers, encouraging, encouraging them to teach their employees on how to become politically involved, who their congressman, who their senator was, why the private enterprise system was good, why they need to be participating in the public process or else they would find uh, our country taken over by uh, others that they didn't agree with, didn't want. That was a very tough year 
And so at the end of the year, I went to work for one of my clients, became a personnel director for a little time in a company, a manufacturing company. But that year was 1980, and that was the year that President Reagan, or Ronald Reagan, Governor Reagan, ran for the United States presidency. And I had someone approach me and say, we think you ought to run for the United States Congress from the second district in the state of New Hampshire. Now, I had been a school board member, but ordinarily, that is not, those of you who are in political science, that's not the step you take. You don't usually go from school board to the Congress of the United States. But this man, young man approached me. Our children were attending Dublin Christian Academy at the time. And he, was a, he was a fellow there who uh, uh, I had known for some time. He was involved in the Republican Party. And he said, uh, I think you ought to consider a run for the Congress. So that night, I struggled. I told my wife, I said, you know, I've been approached to run for Congress. And she said, you what? You've got to be kidding me. No, she didn't say it quite that way, but I knew what she was thinking inside. But I, I struggled with it. We didn't talk much about it. But the next morning, we had a little Volkswagen Rabbit diesel. And I got in my little Rabbit, and I headed down to the nearby town to do some repair. I've forgotten what the purpose was now. And I don't know about you, but occasionally, I just talk to the Lord all by myself, just out loud. I know he can hear me if I don't even speak out loud, but I was just talking out loud to him, and I was just saying as I was driving along, Lord, this, is, this has come to my attention. I feel, I feel like it's a preposterous idea. I can't imagine how I could ever win a race for Congress, and I don't think I should do it, but then again, maybe I should. What should I do? You've, this is so important for my family, our children, my wife. Uh, I need to hear your voice, or I need to have a clear dis uh, direction from you. Now, I can't say that I heard the voice of God, but I can tell you this, that he brought forcibly to me the words of a poem which have stayed with me and which I verily believe were his words of message to me at that time. As I was praying, the words of a poem came to me, and a phrase of it I'll give you, because this is what came to me at that time. One step thou seest. Go forth boldly. One step is far enough for faith to see. Take that, and thy next duty shall be told thee. For step by step, thy Lord is leading thee. That made such a powerful impression on me that it clinched it. And when I told my wife, she agreed. We looked up the poem, which I have on my wall now, and I've referred to it many times since. There's another phrase in there that has meant a lot to me during the years since then, since 1980, May of 1980. Dare every peril, save to disobey. March on all obstacles surmounting, for I, the strong, will open up the way. And truly, the Lord Jesus Christ has done that for me over and over and over during the intervening years. So I ran for Congress. Well, with that kind of backing, you might think, hey, you have a chance to win. I did. I campaigned all over New Hampshire. Our kids went with us. We had a, we had a picture of uh, my five children, my wife and I, and our collie dog, a white collie, stretched across the gravel road where we lived, and we all said, sweet runs for Congress. Oh, brother, you know, I don't know. Anyway, we had a lot of fun. We met a lot of people. That time I met, Senator, uh, I met uh, John Sununu. Some of you may know of him. He was the chief of staff for President Bush. Uh, governor of New Hampshire. I met uh, John uh, Robert Smith, who is now the United States Senator from New Hampshire. I met Gordon Humphrey, who was the United States former United States Senator from New Hampshire, and Judd Gregg, who is now a Senator from New Hampshire. All these people 
were running for something during the 1980 campaign. And I met them. Well, I lost. In September, I did not win the race. And for almost a year, I was out of work. Now, you might think that's kind of a tough thing to swallow after you feel like the Lord has led you, but you know that was one of the most precious times during my life. During that period, the Lord met our needs always, always, always. You know, somebody said, he's never, God is never early, but he's always on time. And that's what we found. We fed our, found our needs met. We found at Christmas time there were gifts available for us, for our children, which we wanted to maintain that. We had our children in Christian schools. We were paying tuition. We knew that the school was not running on a lot of money. We wanted to pay our bills. And over and over and over, the Lord met our needs where, I, at this point, at this time, I don't even know where it all came from. Well, in June of 1981, I had applied for work in Washington, D.C. Well, no, I'd applied for a political position in Boston because I thought, well, I can commute from my home in Dublin, New Hampshire. It's not too far. But somehow I felt like the Lord was leading us on in a different direction. And so I called Senator Gordon Humphrey and I said, Senator, if there's anything in Washington or if you think there's any way I could go down there, I'd like to give it a try. I'd like to apply for it. He said, well, I'll see what I can do. So several months later, after a lot of activity and so forth and interviewing, he called me up in the mountains of New Hampshire where I was with my 10-year-old boy. We were taking a little camping trip. I was with him, just with him. And I called in by telephone to my wife. She said, Senator Humphrey called, and he says that uh, you've got your job. And I said, really? You mean it? She said, yes. I said, well, when do I start? And he says, well, how soon can you get here? So we went to Washington, D.C. in 1981. Well, some people call that Babylon on the Potomac, you know, the Potomac River out there. And I can tell you that the kinds of pressures and the kinds of things that you face when you're dealing with public policy at the highest levels of government do test one's metal. They test your soul. Are you going to stand for the Christian principles that you were taught so many years ago? Do you really believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that it applies in every policy decision? Are you going to give your testimony or not? Or are you going to go to the parties and go along with all the things that you have available to you down in Washington, D.C.? Well, I can tell you and stand here and look you in the eye and say that the Almighty, through His Holy Spirit, kept us pure and clean and holy and godly throughout that 12 years in Washington, D.C. Praise be to God. National Institute of Education. I became the director. I had a bachelor's degree in English. That's all I still have, in case you didn't know it. Couldn't hire me here. I don't have a Ph.D. But I became the director of the National Institute of Education. That was the heartbeat of everything wrong with the public schools. They had pumped out all kinds of liberal propaganda throughout the years, and here I am in the middle of it. I supervised almost 300 PhDs in psychology and whatever. Education, they don't like that very well. Nevertheless, the Lord placed me there, and there are two studies. You probably won't, uh, won't know about them, but uh, perhaps you will. Have you ever heard of Dr. Paul Vitz from New York University? Well, he did a study, and in that study, he evaluated textbooks, school textbooks to find out what their attitude was toward uh, Christianity, toward the founding principles of our nation. What had they done to include some of the historical evidence of the influence of Christianity in our nation? And he found that they had basically censored it out of textbooks. Well, that study was commissioned because I signed the paper that allowed him to get the money, and that study went on and was published, that was published in 1985 and has had an impact all across the nation because it exposed what has really been going on in our textbook industry. 
affected the state of California, and I don't know how much of it has uh, uh, affected the textbook industry, but it certainly gave a lot of visibility to, to the issue. And many lawsuits used that study as the basis. Well, I got a lot of criticism for that. My staff didn't recommend I fund it, and they said, you're, you're mixing church and state. You shouldn't do that. Well, I knew that it was the right thing to do, and so I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fund that project. Well, it was written up in the Washington Post and all the education journals, and I was uh, skewered and pilloried and well, everything else that they can do to you when you're in public positions like that. But nevertheless, that was God's timing, because I was only there at the Institute for about, I guess it was nine or ten months. One other study, because of my interest in literacy, I had, an, I had a desire to do a study of all the research, combine it on the way children learn to read. I commissioned a study that ultimately was published in 1985 called Becoming a Nation of Readers. And that study recommended phonetics as a foundational principle of teaching reading, and that study has had uh, impact in teachers' colleges all across the land. There are probably a half a million or more of them have been submitted. Well, it was just because the Lord had me there at that particular time. One man, one woman can make a difference. Through a series of circumstances that I won't go into now because it would take longer than I, than I have here, I was literally bounced into the White House. Now, how would you like... I don't know whether you care about this or not. Maybe none of you would even want to, but... I mean, I never even thought about it, actually, when I was growing up, but would you like to have an opportunity to work in the White House just for a little while to see what it's like? Anybody would care about that. I know well, California is a wonderful place, so I guess I better not ask you to raise any hands, but... But, uh, you know, that's really quite a privilege, quite a thing to be able to go and work in the White House, work with the President of the United States. Not a bad deal, even to be a secretary or a, you know, janitor or whatever. Well, I got to the White House, 1983, and I dealt with issues of abortion, of pornography, of the family, religious liberty, AIDS, education issues. But the most important thing that I was able to do during my tenure there was to pray. I met a man who works for Time Magazine. You know there were any godly people working for Time Magazine? I met this man and he had spent some time in the office in Jerusalem as the Time Magazine's uh, man in the Middle East. And our, our hearts knit because I heard him say, when we were in Jerusalem, we used to have a, a men's group that used to pray and we used to pray for the events and the issues of the time and we found marvelous answers to prayer he'd spent time in Beijing China too and I so I spoke to him after our little Bible study and I said you know I've been looking for somebody that would pray with me would you be interested in coming into the White House and praying with me and he said I would that would just I'd love to do that so for several years this man and I spent time in the morning usually once a week on our knees praying for the president, praying for the Congress, praying for the passage of the budget or whatever, praying against pornography, praying for the leaders in our nation because we had direct contact with them. We prayed people out of the White House. We prayed, we prayed budgets through. We even had the head... One morning, we were, one day we had been praying that the budget would be passed. We thought it was ridiculous that the United States of America couldn't get a budget through the Congress, that these people would be so obstreperous that they wouldn't allow that to happen. And so, we prayed specifically that the budget would be passed. Well, the next morning, this fellow called me. He looked at the Washington Post and it says, the day before it had said, budget impasse. Dole says, you can't possibly get the budget through. The next morning, after we had prayed, the headline said, 
U.S. passes budget. And he said, can you believe it? And I said, well, hey, we have been praying for that. Our God is, all, is big enough to take care of that. And he did. Well, he gave us little indications along the way. Answers to prayer that helped us know and made us know that he was watching us and he was encouraging us along the way. One of the prayer partners that I had is a lady who's here. In fact, her daughter attends your school. This is Alfonso. Came up from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I didn't know Meg at that time. And she came in and after I had spoken at some education conference, she had a chance to come to Washington. And we had a chance to pray together in my office. And I can tell you that, and she's, she's still a prayer partner, I have valued her prayers and Meg's prayers over the years. That's an important thing for you to just tuck away. Pray for people in leadership. Pray for them. Hold them up because it's a, it's a tough business. I've prayed with many folks during my tenure in the White House. Well, Noah's, uh, who's, the, who's the person that said, uh, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of? Who's the... Tennyson? Sounds good to me. Well, I believe that's true. The prayers that we pray have an impact. I want to give you another little vignette. How'd you like to have lunch in the cabinet room with the president? And how would you like to be there with all the religious leadership of the world? Jews, Christians, Catholics, whatever, all the religious leaders, having lunch in the cabinet room. And they bring out the plates and they set them around and everybody has this wonderful array of food. Now, if you were the leading evangelical leader, what would you do first? Would you bow your head in prayer or would you put your fork in and go at it? Well, I hate to say this, but here's the president sitting in the middle of the table. And there's people all around the cabinet table. It's a big, big room there. And all the religious leaders stuck their fork in and started to eat. So President Reagan sort of looks, if you, if you watched him at all, he sort of, you know, he looked like this, around like that, and he said, uh, say, um, I wonder if you'd mind if an old layman asked the blessing on the food. Everybody wanted to uh, put a knife to their throat. Is that what it says in the scripture, you know, when you eat too much? And he did. He prayed, asked the blessing on the food, and closed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the cabinet room. Nobody prompted him to do it, but that was just his heart. Well, I had an experience a few days ago. My son-in-law was here, works with me in the National Right to Read Foundation, said, I'm one of these guys that, you know, I always pray at my meals when I go to restaurants. Now, I'm not saying what you have to do and what you don't, but I have no apology of my testimony for Christ wherever I am. That's Christ in the marketplace. Who knows? Somebody might watch and see and say, I'd like to talk with you because, you know, maybe you know something I don't. Well, I was down in San Diego Thursday night having dinner with Senator, former Senator, United States Senator Gordon Humphrey. Well, Senator Humphrey is a fairly rough gentleman in some ways. He's, uh, he's a very uh, conservative man. I have great respect for him, but uh, he is not a person that I would think of as is particularly asking, uh, saying grace or asking blessing on our food before we eat. So Jim and I and Senator Humphrey were in the hotel down there in San Diego, and I must and I I say I don't I try not to embarrass people if I'm with them, and you no know, I try to sense the situation. I don't want to make them feel too awkward, so maybe that's where I'm in the middle here. But uh, anyway. Um, I had my fork in my, I wasn't sure quite what to do, and, and I saw Jim was, was just kind of, he was just kind of waiting to see, and 
I kind of had my fork part way started, you know. Senator Humphrey says, say, he says, let's surprise everybody here and bow our heads and say grace on our food. <laughs> I thought, well, I should have learned my lesson back here a while ago. And so he did. Well, anyway, give your testimony. Don't be ashamed of it. You know, we've got something wonderful to give the world. You know that? You're learning things here that are priceless. I just think you, you have such a privilege being here at this school. So let's be consistent in our walk with God. Well, out of the frying pan into the fire. Reagan administration ends. I'm out of work for five months. Had to draw out my retirement, spend that to keep food on the table. That's okay. My retirement, I'm laying up in heaven anyway. I don't care about all the rest of this stuff. I do want food on the table, though, but uh, the Lord's been able to take care of that. <clears throat> Well, I had a chance to go to work for Senator Bill Armstrong in the Senate Republican Policy Committee. And he said, go ahead and write a couple of papers, whatever you like. And I said, okay, I want to write, write one on illiteracy. So I wrote a paper called Illiteracy, Incurable Disease or Education Malpractice. Uh, that's sort of a provocative title. Well, they, sold about, or they gave about 15,000 of those out all across the country. It's kind of the history of reading instruction, why we have a problem and so forth. And I was there for about eight months, and during that time, I was nominated by President Bush to become the administrator for the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. And in that, I was finally confirmed after a long hassle in the Senate, went up before the Senate committee, and those guys could ask you any questions you want. You had to have all the answers, you know. They could ask you anything, and you're supposed to know. Well, it's not the easiest position to be in. But anyway, I passed, got through it okay, somehow, and they confirmed me in April of 1990, and I became the administrator the day after. Well, I spent two years there, and I traveled all over the country. I've been down to Los Angeles and South L.A. in the gang area, and out and down in Dallas and up in Chicago. And I've met with police departments and probation departments, and I've met with educators. And I had an exposure to things that I never, just never thought I would have an opportunity to do. I met with juvenile court judges, spoke to a thousand of them out in Rapid City, South Dakota, and, uh, and have had, had an opportunity to have an impact there. Well, during that period of time, because the devil is no respecter of persons, you know, he'll get the, the weak ones... And the children, he doesn't care. He, get, he goes after the weakest ones uh, and, and tries to get them for himself. And so because of the position I was in, there was a lot of pressure that I had. So my wife typed out some three-by-five cards. You remember the story in Scripture where when Jesus met uh, Satan uh, there and he was tempting him during the temptation on the mountain? And Jesus said, it is written. He quoted that over and over. And so I had these three-by-five cards... And I kept them in my pocket, and then after a while in the drawer, and I'd pull them out every once in a while, and I'd walk around the office all by myself, and I would say to Satan and the evil spirits, whatever was around, all the principalities, it is written, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I had a whole long list of these. Well, it came in handy one time because I had to speak in Atlanta, Georgia, for Vice President Quayle. And there was... A group of Christian people there, probably five or six hundred of them. And in the audience were some people who looked a little bit unlike those that you'd think would be in a Christian audience. We weren't sure, but we thought there were a group there. And one of the issues was AIDS and dealing with some of the problems with homosexuality and so forth. I didn't have a, and that wasn't part of my responsibility, but that was part of the program. Well, shortly after the speaker gave the introductory prayer and we sang a song, about 25 people jumped up in the audience, and it was the Act Up crowd. And they walked around throwing things, and I won't even say, but they were throwing them all over the audience, 
throwing them up on the stage, and they had hatred in their eyes, absolute hatred. And I tell you, we fear, I would, you know, it happens so quickly that you hardly know even how to react, but it was that sense of hatred and animosity toward the things of God that, would, that put shivers in you. Well, I had the copies of my cards right in my pocket, and I handed them to the lady who was going ahead, and I said, look, read these. These things are powerful right now. So she pulled them out and she read down through about five or six scriptures. And it just brought peace and calm to the audience. They ushered these people out. We went on with our, with our presentation down there. So God in the marketplace, God with you wherever you go. The Bible is powerful. It works. Got ten minutes here. Just getting warmed up. No, no, not really. <laughs> well, I got to the Department of Justice, Juvenile Justice Office, and I thought, good, I found my niche. I can make a difference here. And after two years, I was fired. I say, well, probably, you know, I can understand that based on what you've said so far. You see. I was fired because the person who was my supervisor was asking me to do things that, in my opinion, were illegal. I had control of money, government money, tax dollar money, your money, and I was determined to abide by the law. And sometimes that isn't always the case in Washington, D.C., I'm sorry to say. And I also was convinced that if we were ever going to turn the problem of juvenile delinquency around, we had to restore virtue and teaching moral values in our schools. And I talked about that to judges and to corrections officers and to anybody that would listen to me. And because I was in a position to talk about it, they didn't dare challenge me very much. And so I used that. Well, I'm sure that had an impact as well as what I consider to be some requests to do some things that were not really legal. And so, on a Friday afternoon, I was called in to the, my supervisor's office, and he said, this was at 10 minutes of 4 in the afternoon, and he said, this was Easter weekend, 1990, 92, rather, in April, April 6th, I think it was, and he said, um, I'm not satisfied with your work. I've contacted the Attorney General. I've notified the White House. You are to turn in your resignation as of this afternoon, and you were to clean out your desk, and you were to be out of this office by Monday, turn in your passes, you are no longer involved. We are transferring you to the U.S. Marshal Service. Now, I always wanted to be a marshal uh, like, you know, Wyatt Earp and Matt Dillon, but I wasn't big enough. Come on. I mean, I can't. Well, I, it, needless to say, it was a tremendous shock. I had, I had just returned on a round-country trip, spoken in Florida, spoken to people in California, Texas, and I, had, I was just totally unprepared for it. But somehow the peace of God came on me that afternoon as I sensed that, well, you got me here, Lord. Now my time is done here. Okay, what's next? Well, that earlier that week, I had to testify in Congress. That Tuesday, as a matter of fact. This was on a Friday when I was fired. And the Congress liked what I had to say. They were responsive. They thought the direction we were setting was right. And my wife had called and had given me a scripture... And that scripture was Psalm 18:39. Thou hast girded me with strength for the battle. Thou hast subdued under me those who rose up against me. And I thought, because I had had a lot of opposition when I was up for confirmation, I thought, well, that applies to... The fact that I had people now testifying in Congress about the good things I was doing, they felt I'd had a, had turned around a very difficult situation in the, uh, in the administration of uh, juvenile justice. And so I thought, well, that must apply to that. Well, as I was... Uh, anyway, that she gave me that, and I appreciated it. It was helpful at the time. 
Well, then I thought, I'm fired on Friday, so, so how, I mean, how does this apply? The next morning, Saturday morning, my wife and I were driving in for me to clean out my desk. And my staff was in tears. I mean, every, it, was just, it was just a terrible thing. Uh, everybody was very sad to see me go, and I was sad to leave because we had just really begun to, to fight, as they say. Um, and so she was reading. We read through the Bible every year together. And she was reading in 2 Samuel, the 22nd chapter, and the 40th verse. And this is what it says. For thou hast girded me with strength for battle. Thou hast subdued unto me those who rose up against me. The very same scripture. Just in our routine daily Bible reading. She didn't know it was there, and I didn't know it was there. And here we came across this very same scripture. Well, what a comfort that was. Well, to show you how that was applied, three months later, the guy that fired me was fired. He's gone. So is everybody else, as a matter of fact. Well, I had a quiet time at the U.S. Marshal Service. Didn't have a lot of responsibilities. And then I was appointed as commissioner for children, youth, the Children's Bureau and on to the Children, Youth, and Families uh, Commissioner's job, which I was scheduled to become uh, if uh, Mr. Bush had been reelected. And he wasn't. And so on the 20th of January at noontime, I finished 12 years of service to the United States federal government as a civil servant. Uh, that is a political civil servant, I guess you'd say. Well, now what? All through my years as a teacher, as a school board member, whether I was in the Department of Education or in the Department of Justice or in the Senate, I was concerned about the literacy rate in this country or the illiteracy rate. And I knew something was wrong. And so we have applied now those principles and established the National Right to Read Foundation. Jim Jacobson is here, our vice president, and myself. And we've made a visit out here to California, the National... Uh, Religious Broadcasters Convention. We met with Sean Shanahan, who's president of Hooked on Phonics. We have a, a monthly newsletter, uh, yeah, monthly newsletter, and he's going to put a pack, one in every package he sends out, and he sends out 10,000 a week. That's not a bad start for a little organization like ours that's working out of the basement in my home. So we're looking for great things ahead. Let me just close with this. There's a scripture that I want to just read to you in closing, before I pray. America is in grave danger. It is not impossible for our nation to go the way of all other nations that have rejected God. We are in moral freefall. You, as young people who are the leaders of the next generation, have a tremendous responsibility on your shoulders. If you are in business, take God with you in the business place. If you are a homemaker, exalt God. Read your, to your children. Read the Bible to your children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Whatever your calling may be, take God with you. Take the Word of God with you. Take the lessons you're, lean, you're learning here now. Apply them as you move on out to whatever, wherever the Lord may call you. You are the generation to lead. Let your light so shine among men that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I'd like to read from 2 Thessalonians 5:12 in closing. First, I was right driving, putting this in the car. No, first, excuse me, first Thessalonians. I looked at the top of the page when I was driving up in the car here. This is Paul's admonition. And I apply it here to, to myself as well as 
to all of you. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. That's your faculty. Honor them. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me while we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for these young people who have chosen to follow you. Thank you for the Master's College. Thank you for dedicated faculty, dedicated leadership, Dr. John MacArthur. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you have done to lead them into the truth. I pray for each individual person here today that they will find that the Holy Spirit truly does lead them into all truth, into all righteousness, step by step by step. Protect and guard their souls and their hearts so that together we will truly rejoice when we see your face and that we will find, you will find faith on this earth. These things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.